Welcome, welcome back to another episode of Trades Talk. Maggie Wymore here. In today's episode, we have Stephen Benavides from Superscapes out of the Dallas area. Stephen has a unique background in taking Superscapes and getting them tied into private equity investment. He talks all about their road to get there and what they're doing now and pivoting towards the future with that investment. Justin, what are your takeaways? So today's episode, we're going to talk a lot about private equity investments, looking at your business as an investment, and really when you decide, if you decide to partner with an investment banker or private equity or platform company, what you want to look for in that partner and not just taking the first person that pops into your inbox. So Stephen really takes us through that whole process that he went through while partnering with Superscapes and Crux to create the platform company that is Superscapes today, who are doing north of 50 million this year and are on an absolute terror in the Dallas market. Yeah, I think one of the things that I took away from this episode was some of the numbers that he threw out, and I'm not going to give any spoilers, but he threw out some very specific numbers to look for in your business to make specific pivots, whether it be to bring in a consultant, to join a peer group, to look for that private equity investment. Those specific benchmarks are something that I think I find very valuable and that our listeners will will relate to very well. Yeah, we cover the whole benchmarking around EBITDA and what you can expect in terms of as you scale EBITDA, what type of investors, private equity you're going to attract. And really, we talk a lot about how to get there, actually. We get into the nuts and bolts of converting construction jobs into maintenance and how Superscapes went all construction from 2016 to 2019 and then have now pivoted back into maintenance and are closing in on that golden 50-50 mix. And Stephen kind of talks about how they did that. Yeah. Well, should we dive in? Um, not keep them waiting any longer? All right, guys, let's go. All right, guys, we got Steven here on the podcast today. Steven, you want to give us a little background on how you got here today, your background in landscaping and everything you're about? No, Justin, I, I appreciate the invite and I'm excited to to talk with uh, with you and Maggie uh, kind of about uh, where I've come from and what we're doing right now with Superscapes and Crux. So it's kind of a 15-year journey that led us here. I have been super good friends. He's been a, a business partner, one of my closest friends in life with Sean Clayton, the CEO of Superscapes. Our children grew up together. We've just had a, a lot of great experiences these last 15, 18 years. And about 12 years ago, Superscapes, which is a small, was was a small landscape company in the North Dallas area, started making a, the transition to kind of larger commercial projects, doing some construction installations that required, you know, a little bit more formal financial planning, a little bit more rigid reporting, some bonding requirements were starting to become more of an issue with Superscapes. And, and Sean, God bless him, just, you know, that wasn't his background. You know, he's, he's a landscaper through and through and can sell anybody in any room he walks into. But <laughs> he came to me knowing that I had, you know, more of a financial background and had sold a few businesses uh, of my own in the past and asked for help. And I said, absolutely. And that was kind of my foyer into the landscape world, seeing kind of what he was doing, helping him kind of take that next leap up into a larger project, larger presence in the commercial landscape industry. And since then, I kind of served as his kind of de facto CFO, you know, on a part-time basis. We worked really well together growing Superscapes up until mid kind of 2019. And at that point in time, Sean approached me and said, you know what, I think it's time to, to take some chips down off the table and see what the company is worth. Of course, you know, he's gotten approached multiple times by various potential partners, both just pure financial partners, some more strategic companies that were in either the same industry or complementary industries in the North Dallas area. So I said, okay, well, let's do it. And, and Superscapes was at a size at the time that really going and finding a an investment banking group made sense to leverage their network of potential buyers leverage their manpower to developing the information memorandum and really doing a full auction process, which 
not all companies warrant that level of effort when they're going through a sale. We started that process in, in the summer of 2019. I remember vividly the conversation. We were kind of on the back porch of our golf club. I'd just finished playing golf and decided it's time to sell. <laughs> if you don't mind sharing, what size approximately was Superscapes at that time? And, and what size do you really need to be to warrant that type of attention? Great question, Justin. At the time, Superscapes was doing... Well, I'll, I'll fast forward six months because I know those numbers intimately because that's kind of what we closed at. So at the end of 2019, Superscapes was 36 million top line revenue doing roughly 18% bottom line margin. So those were the heydays of the landscape industry. <laughs> that's <laughs> strong. Yeah. Really that's strong. My, uh, my eyes got very big at that. <laughs> yeah. So, and there was some definite strategy in thinking, okay, is now the time to sell? We had two good, strong years and in, in 18 and 19 that led us to think, okay, now would be a good valuation window to evaluate the company. So we started down that process that summer and, you know, hundreds of phone calls with potential buyers, mostly pure financial buyers. These are other private equity groups uh, from all over the country. Normally we start out with doing just intro calls after your SIM, uh, your confidential information memorandum is kind of dis distributed out amongst the network of your bankers. And I think we maybe did 60 or 70 of those intro calls after they looked wow. at the SIM. And just to kind of get a feel, this is, I, I would almost equate it to like those speed dating things you see, you know, <laughs> go on where... You're just trying to get a feel for, would this be somebody I'd want to, I'd want to work with? You're really not talking, you know, dollars at that point or structure. You're just trying to get a gauge of the sincerity of their interest. And then, you know, investment bankers will typically then try to wean those things down and start asking the dirty questions of, you know, where's the money coming from? What kind of valuations are you guys seeing in the industry? And we narrowed it down to probably, I want to say six that we did in-person meetings with. Some guys, you know, were flying in from New York, other parts of the country. And then we met with some local companies here, Crux Capital being one of them. And Stephen, sorry to interrupt, but I do okay. want to kind of ask you on this process of going from 80, 90 phone calls and, and weaning in that down to single digits. What were some of the things you as working as that CFO, almost advisor to Sean in this moment, what were you personally looking for in these speed dating rounds when you're talking to these investment bankers, private equity individuals? Great question. I was really more looking for, had they done similar size deals recently, either in this industry or similar size companies that were in just general construction space? What kind of value were these companies going to bring to the table outside of just cash? Okay. So I would advise anybody doing this or looking at doing a potential transaction with their business. It isn't just about getting the highest dollar amount. 100%. I'll say that is more important depending upon where the owner is in their career in terms of, are they looking at a full exit? Okay, I'm done. I don't want to transition this to a second generation or third generation. Then of course, you know, top line valuation is probably more important versus you take a CEO like Sean, who very young, relatively speaking, uh, he was, let's see, that was four years ago. He's 40, so 45. Uh, so wow. still, you know, a lot of life left in the yeah. tires, <laughs> did not want to fully walk away. So then you're looking for different characteristics and qualities in the people you're going to partner with. Yeah. And so I was more looking at that. And then talking about just overall structure of the deals, some groups will be a lot more aggressive in terms of how they structure it with debt versus equity. They will be a lot more aggressive in, or less aggressive in closing schedules and how, how fast they want to get a deal done. And I'm quoting my partner, Wayne here. I mean, time kills all deals. So you don't want companies are going to say, yeah, we're going to do this, but it's going to take us nine months. That's kind of a, a no-no kind of thing. You really want to, to proceed vigorously once you get a deal kind of inked in terms of an LOI yeah. executed. So. So with that, you were talking about financially set up correctly, you know, debt versus equity. I'm going to actually kind of go backwards a little bit and ask mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that 18% margin and that's sticking in my brain. <laughs> that's a, 
a unicorn in the industry. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, I wish I wish we were still there today right now, but you know, COVID and a lot of changes yeah. in our space have have made that tough. Uh, yeah, the Dallas market is exploding, though, I will say. So that is a little unique from where you're at in a geographical setting. But going back to how did you guys, besides just, you know, you said a little bit of luck and the economy doing good, what other strategic moves did you make to get to that 18% margin? And then to follow that up, what financial characteristics were you looking for in a private equity firm based on, you know, debt and all these different things that you're just discussing because to like maintain that 18% margin where you're at? It's a little bit ironic that a few years before we did the deal with Superscapes, they made the decision to kind of exit the maintenance side of the landscape space and focus solely on the construction. Labor was a big constraining factor for us. It was very, very tough to find good labor in the Dallas market. Was that H2B affected? We do utilize the H2B program. It goes year to year, depending yeah. upon what percentage of our labor force we're going to supplement with the H2B program. And I can talk a lot about that, you know, as we progress. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking the timeline fit to kind of when they um, got rid of the returning workers exemption. So I was yeah, just trying they, it, to it, see if that correlated to it at all. It's always an X factor with us as far yeah. as, you know, what round are you going to get? How many guys are you going to get? And to base a business model on that is risky. It's tough. It's risky. Yeah. So love the program. The guys that we do wind up getting are all great workers and just want to earn a great wage and support their family. So I'm a huge advocate of the program. If if we can just work out a few kinks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so contrary to now what the industry is seeing where maintenance and recurring revenue is such a huge part of, of your enterprise value. Back in 2015 and 16, Sean and Superscase made a conscious effort to exit the maintenance business and focus solely on the construction. You know, we were kind of seeing that post-Great Recession boom, particularly in the Dallas-Fort Worth market. We got a lot of public work with the school districts in North Dallas that generated a lot of very, very high margin work. Ironically, typically public work would be lower margin, but we were able to capitalize on some great relationships. And, you know, it was just so much so fast that is almost like if you could perform the work, you got the contract. And we had a ton of general contractors that afforded us, you know, good opportunities to kind of get that last look on where we kind of needed to be because we'd proven ourselves as great operators and great deliverers of quality product and services. So uh, that's really what Sean, our CEO, is is just so good at in terms of solidifying relationships with great partner companies, general contractors that drive so much of our construction work. So leading up to 2020, we were very, very heavy in construction. It was very high margin construction work, but a ton of construction. I would think we were maybe like 75% of our revenue was coming from new construction versus 25 was doing just commercial maintenance. So a little higher margins, but a lot less predictable. But you guys were still able to get a, a deal done even without that 50, 60% of maintenance in the book of business. We were just a tremendous amount of trust and confidence that we were transitioning kind of in late 2019. And we were seeing these metrics of so much of our maintenance contracts was coming from our construction, completed construction work. Right. So if we start tracking as kind of one of our, our KPIs or key results that we measure is what is that conversion rate of construction work over to maintenance above and beyond just normal warranty periods. But then also what is a typical annual maintenance contract as a percentage of dollars spent on construction? So if you're spending $100,000 on a construction project, that equates to a $12,000 a year maintenance contract. Um, mm -hmm. And start looking at those kind of metrics. And we saw, golly, there's this huge potential backlog that we need to focus on and really stress that we we capture to generate this recurring revenue. And over the last couple of three years, you know, we're now at that, I mean, our construction, kind of like you, Justin, our construction has really picked up over the yeah. last three months. <laughs> so our <laughs> ratios have kind of got a little bit wonky just in the last, in Q3, but we're at that probably 55, 45 ratio of construction to maintenance. And when I say maintenance, I'm, I'm including base contracts, but also enhancement work and and subsequent irrigation repair services and whatnot on those base contracts. So we're super close to that golden 50-50 yeah. split, which has always been a target of ours because the EVs go up significantly when you get, when you get past that. 
so where you guys were at 36 million 2019 in that transition to getting closer to that 50 50 split um where are you guys at now as far as growth have you grown the top line revenue or is something oh yeah something yeah well? i think this year we'll we'll hit maybe 51 top line nice congratulations over the 50 yeah, mark yeah 50 i mean i think our target budget was like 47 yeah. And we've exceeded our top line bar budget, you know, this year, again, a lot of it just in this last Q3, we've really blown through some numbers and gotten a lot of work completed. So we've always had this really, really big backlog, particularly through COVID, but now in the year subsequent, you know, we're just still playing catch up. You know, we've got a lot of jobs that have been on the books for a while. And as anybody knows, landscape, that's the last thing you do on a construction project. <laughs> yeah. And so it just seemed to get pushed and pushed and pushed, getting job sites ready and trying to square peg around hole into job sites that really weren't ready. And that wound up eating into margin and we, we don't do that anymore. And so a lot of this backlog, like we're going into next year already fully booked up construction wise at north of $50 million worth of, worth of construction alone. I think your attention to converting those construction jobs into maintenance customers is something that many of us who focus on construction miss. And I think the reason is because we split our teams up. One team's focused on maintenance, the other team's focused on construction. Whether it's operation or sales, they tend to be separated. How have you guys been able to bridge the gap between the construction operation and sales team to the maintenance and operation and sales team? Are you guys doing some type of an onboarding, getting the customer in front of the maintenance salesperson? How do you convert those construction jobs into recurring maintenance contracts down the road? The biggest thing is, you know, we typically will not do a construction project unless, or we won't warranty anything until we have the maintenance for a year. So that's just built into every one of our bids now. There is a, a one-year warranty period that only applicable if we are maintaining the property. So when you're talking about these larger construction projects, that's a risk that most GCs and owners aren't going aren't to want to risk losing. Particularly the last couple of years we're here in Dallas, we've had some really hard freezes one week or so right. each winter and have lost a lot of materials. So that's been very valuable to the owners. You know, So we have that kind of that one year window to, and as long as you deliver, you know, and put your money where your mouth is, they're not going to want to switch. Now we are, we are not the low cost provider of, construction or maintenance in, right. in our market, okay. you know, so we definitely have to deliver very, very high end services to our customers. You know, a lot of it really is just putting in some tracking and some metrics, you know, what gets measured gets managed and knowing mm -hmm. what is, what are those conversion rates and just bringing it to the forefront as much as you can with your team members and said, look, if we're only converting 70% of our construction work into maintenance, you know, we're losing work. We're losing enterprise value by not doing that. They're basically yours to lose. If you put in the system, if you put that pipe in the ground, you planted that tree, it's yours to lose. I love that. I love that mindset. And that it sounds like your conversation about maintenance starts when you bid the job at the very beginning. You're talking about maintenance at that point. Is that right? Absolutely. We're looking at our construction projects now, not just through the lens of gross profitability on that work, but what is that potential maintenance contract? And at sometimes do we even get more aggressive on the construction bid, knowing that there's a huge, huge maintenance contract or maintenance relationship even down the road, you know, so not, not so much as a lost leader, so to speak, but we can get way more aggressive when we know there's a substantial maintenance contract. You got down to six, you ultimately partnered with the one, is this maintenance push and kind of essentially like buying some of the construction business to make sure that you lock in a maintenance contract moving on in the future. Is that, was that something that Crux gave to you as, as an idea or pushed you in that direction? Or is that something you guys all decided on as a leadership team? What happened? Very, very early on when uh, even before we closed and we're having a lot of conversations and working intimately with Wayne and, and the team at Crux, maintenance became a huge, you know, there was a huge spotlight put on it. That's where the perspective of not so much bottom line, cash flow or earnings today, but building enterprise value over a longer period, that's the lens that a good private equity firm will, will look at. So yes, you know, as we were going through the process, it was like, guys, we got to focus on maintenance. You know, that's, that's what's going to turn an X million dollar company into a three X million dollar company in terms of valuation, maybe not revenue, maybe not bottom line cash that month or that year, 
but valuations yeah. are, are, you know, you'll get three, potentially four more turns of your earnings if you are a super heavy maintenance business. A hundred percent. Yeah. We even see that in the tech world, the world that I work in on a daily basis, you know, ARR is the big, the big thing that they measure on. And yeah, um, yeah. Our, yeah. our monthly reports we have, it's all ours is MRR, you know, but yeah, yeah. it's uh, that's a key number that we look at <laughs> all the time. Amazon's worth what it's worth because of that prime, you know, hundred dollar a year deal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Not because they're making a lot of money on paper clips. <laughs> Or making a lot of money on me ordering things daily. So, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I've heard you mention EV or enterprise value a few times now. It seems like that is at the core root of so much of your conversations from a leadership and executive standpoint at Superscapes. How is partnering with a private equity team, Crux, given Superscapes a new perspective on enterprise value and building a company that's more than just a landscape cash cow, but actually something that's worth value from a enterprise value, as you put it. Well, Justin, I mean, that the lens that Crux or I think any good private equity group or independent sponsor investment group will, will look at, you know, they're not necessarily looking at, you know, how much cash, distributable cash is coming out of the investment. That's not really a goal. They're looking to place money into businesses, not necessarily take money out of businesses. So, Looking for the best use to deploy capital is kind of, uh, you know, what I always look at, not just from my involvement with Crux, but also just personally, everything. It's like, where is the best use of, of this dollar? And as long as the landscape business and superscapes is generating those values and those returns, you know, on the capital that's invested, and that's either through equity that's being raised or leveraging a good banking relationship with debt there's any number of ways to view what your return on capital is. And so putting enterprise value kind of at the forefront of all of our analysis, it isn't so much, did we make money this month? It's, are we hitting our plan? Are we, are we looking like we know what we're doing, whether or not that, whatever the details of what that is may not as a sole owner where you're operating this business is, this is how I'm feeding my family. This is how I'm paying my bills. This is how I'm, you know, paying the mortgage company versus I'm trying to increase the valuation to my investors, you know, and, and Sean, you know, and the team at Superscapes are some of our biggest investors, you know, so it's, there's definitely, we are arm in arm with the team and everybody's goals are aligned as far as what the payday is going to be for this investment a year, two, five, 10, whatever the, whatever the right, right time is down the road. Right. And I think that's something that a lot of business owners, and I've been guilty of it too in my career, not just with what I'm doing right now with Superscapes, but with other businesses is a lot of times CEOs will not understand that they really have two hats that they need to wear. There's the hat of being the operator, the CEO, the leader, running the business, running it efficiently, running it profitably. But then I'm also the owner, okay? And as an owner, I'm looking at, is this the best use of my capital? You know, whether it be time, cash, expertise, whatever. And right. when you look at, you, you've got to look at it from both perspectives and know, Am I doing right by myself as the CEO and paying myself a good wage, you know, managing my time effectively, you know, work-life balance, all those things. But then am I doing a good job for my investor, which in many cases is the same person, you know, yeah. that most business owners, particularly in the landscape space, I mean, this is by and large, their biggest portion of their net worth on their balance sheet is their ownership in their company. And that's with almost all business owners different than people who don't own their own businesses. You know, they'll say it's their house or some other investment, but this is your nest egg. And, and a lot of times it's tough to put a value to it because it's not a liquid type thing. It's not a stock that you're looking at when you log into Schwab or whatever like that or see on the news, but it's it's real. And that's, you know, you gotta, you gotta look at that investment separately than you as the owner. And I think a lot of times those, that line gets very blurred. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah, being a CEO slash owner, it's something that we try to keep our employee hats on as employees and then put our board member investor hats on as owners and we're a family business. But when it comes to making decisions, investing in technology, investing in equipment, investing in people, it's really hard to spend money to build your company up in that investment framework 
when you're so focused on the bottom line profitability every single month, it's got to hit this, it's got to do this. Right. I think it holds a lot of people back from making decisions that would ultimately make their business much more successful and much more valuable in the long run. Yeah. Just put a good plan in place. You know, if if the goal for you as an owner of this business is free cash flow, that's great. Just know it going in. If the goal is enterprise value to build an asset to transition to the second generation, that's great. Plan for it accordingly. And your goal is not to suck out. I mean, I look at so many businesses where I just think to myself, how in the world are you sleeping at night running this business so undercapitalized, you're sucking every dollar out. Yeah, you may be earning, and I'm using my air quotes there, earning a great living, but it should be done so much different with proper structure and, and good planning. So, well, and with that, I mean, at different points of an owner's career, you could be focused on different things. Absolutely. And yeah, and I think the what we're starting to see is the shift and like a generational shift in the in the industry. Part of the reason Justin and I wanted to start this podcast is because we feel we truly feel like we're the next generation of this landscape industry. And what we're finding more and more is that owners in their 60s and 70s, they're not knowing they haven't set themselves up for that transition, whatever it is. And then they're kind of stuck working still in the business and don't know what steps to take to exit. Um, so ultimately, they just either sell for way under the, what they should or they dissolve or they pass it on to someone probably shouldn't be running a business. So do you have any specific advice for those owners out there looking to make that generational shift? Well, if the goal is to pass on, you know, to the next generation, landscape as an industry is one of those you know, there's low barriers to entry. It's typically not viewed as a complicated business, even though in many ways that it is. You know, I'm going to argue with you on that. It's pretty complicated. I, I know. I agree. I think it is too, but it's it's kind of viewed in so many ways by, yeah. by a lot of people as a simple business. And, and it can be at certain scale and sizes. Sure. Um, if you keep snow out of it too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Christmas lights or stuff like that, or immigration law. Like <laughs> Definitely. But I'll just go back to just have a good plan in place and view this truly as an asset that you own, not just that you work in. And by doing that, you'll set up that next generation, you know, I think uh, to have a higher likelihood of success. I've seen a few businesses that kind of crumble because the second generation, I mean, they, they don't have a passion for it. And in many ways, you know, and I've learned this from just being a part of the peer group with ACES and McFarland Stanford, the owners in our space are by and large, very, very passionate about what they do. They really enjoy it. They like the rewards of what they construct. They like the rewards of what they maintain. They like the fact that they're able to provide good paying jobs for a lot of people. I take great pride in the fact that I'm able to provide good wages and good standards of living for a lot of people in the Hispanic labor force. That's a benefit. And so when you, when you do that, Make sure that the person that you're wanting to transition this to kind of shares those same values and those same goals. Because if you're just passing it on, because, hey, you know, dad over here, he made a million dollars a year for 20 years. Great job. You know, did well, blah, blah, blah. But the son, man, he he didn't get it. He doesn't want to be in this business. You know, just be careful about that because you could very easily, you know, transition the company to somebody else and who does have that passion and do something that the second gen or third generation does care about together. So just don't force it. It's super obvious to tell. I mean, Justin, I think you'll shake your head. There are some folks in our peer group alone that were thinking, you know what? The second generation just ain't going to get it done nope. you know, compared to the, the founders. And so and that, there's nothing wrong with that. Just acknowledge it and be, be very truthful to yourself and know what you're doing in that transition. And when? Um, when's a good time? Don't wait too late to where you basically aged out of wanting to materially participate in the business and you kind of leave the second generation stranded. But, you know, I've seen a lot of companies where that second generation is already in their thirties or forties and kind of always being viewed as, you know, the owner's son or the owner's daughter. And that doesn't bode well for establishing credibility and, and authority in a new company. Yeah. I'd say don't be proud, too proud to transition out. Don't be, you know, too protective and proud. I mean, but even you, Justin, I mean, your father is still 
involved and he's still on the board. He, you still bounce ideas off of him regularly. So you can still have a presence and a say, but don't be too proud to transition. And I wasn't talking about you, Jesse, yeah. when I was saying <laughs> no, that. I know. <laughs> no, he was, um, he was like 25 when he took over. So well, I don't know. Can be. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, just on this whole generational transition thing, I think I just got to, you know, my parents both, they let go of the reins and gave them over to me and my brother and my sister and my cousin with me kind of at the helm of the ship. But one thing my dad has always done a really good job at is he stays involved, but he's very humble and supportive. So he doesn't try to take credit for anything. He doesn't try to make himself look like the center of the of the show. And he's there, but he's not trying to steal that presence of leadership. However, when we would go to sit down with a bank or we go to sit down with an investment team, or we go to sit down with top clients, he's there with us as a representation of the board and a representation of the first generation founder. So he's been able to kind of fill these two roles where he provides stability and foundation in a growing company, but while also passing on the torch and passing on the spotlight to myself and my, my siblings in a way that has really benefited our company. And Stephen, to your point, I think he's done a good job at looking at the company from an investment standpoint, not looking at it as a job standpoint right. and really definitively differentiating between those two roles, which there's a huge opportunity for those listening founders or second gen or third gen to find that place. And EOS calls it rocket fuel. I think there's an opportunity there. Yeah. And we had to, you know, very, very early on as far as establishing continuity plans and, you know, with superscapes as far as, you know, from, I hate using everybody's term, you know, somebody gets hit by a bus. I use the term, somebody wins the lottery, you know, instead, you know, if, mm -hmm. if your CEO wins the lottery and they're like, okay, guys, I'm done, I'm done with this, you know, have at it. You, you've got to have plans in place for how does this continue without that person? It isn't always just uh, I'm aging out or there's, there's any number of circumstances that you've got to, you've got to plan for. And I think Justin, like you said, with with your dad, you know, staying in as a presence within the company, but not directly, you know, overseeing or commanding that authority. I think that's really, really important. You know, every ship needs a captain, and it's got to be very, very clear who that person is. You know, I'm involved in some other companies that were struggling with that right now. They always seem to revolve around, you know, kind of family, family-owned businesses big wide families, you know, where a lot of brothers yep. and sisters and stuff like that. And it just, it gets tough and that can, that can spawn, you know, dissent amongst the team members easily. So yeah. I think Justin, you've done a great job, you know, from what we saw out there at your company on our site visit and, and just our conversations, you know, that's, it's not easy. I mean, you throw family into the mix of any company and it, <laughs> it, makes, it, <laughs> it makes yeah, it makes Thanksgiving yeah. dinner a little bit more interesting. Yeah, um, sure. One reoccurring theme I keep hearing from you, Stephen, is um, about the peer groups. And I know that's how you know Justin is through the peer groups. Can you speak to maybe some of our young owners out there listening or people looking just to get involved in peer groups? Is it worth the investment? What points should you get involved? Should you transition to different peer groups at different times? Give me your thoughts on the whole peer group idea as a whole. Sure, right. You know, I will say, well, there were a few questions there. Let me say, preface this with, this is my first peer group to have been involved with in my career. It is 1,000% worth the investment. And, and I'm kind of in a somewhat unique position with our peer group in that I kind of represent the investor owner of the member company, Superscapes, not the founder, CEO, operator. So, you know, I kind of, A, bring a different perspective and to get to absorb, you know, some different perspectives from the other members. I'll say, I would not think there's any minimum company size that would warrant joining a group like what we have with ACES or any comparable peer group. I think probably the earlier, the better to be perfectly honest, because it's just such a good sounding board for ideas, validation for what you're trying to do, what you're failing at. I mean, what you're succeeding at. I, I love the fact in our peer group that, you know, we all, you know, share intimate details about our business and what's working and what's not. 
egos are checked at the door. We're not always putting our best foot forward like you see on social media. <laughs> you know, we're, ta- we're talking about real problems. We're talking about ideas and challenges that other companies have faced that we're all we're all going through at some level of of degree that uh, either we've been through it or we're going or we're going through it now or we know that at, once we get to this level we will go through it. And uh, so I think they're great. I love, you know, the on-site meetings that we have with our team members. I mean, Justin and I just got back from a wonderful, you know, two-week trip in Italy, you know, that we all just decided, you know, let's have our meeting over there. And Yeah. Uh, and I, seen, I never I never thought landscaping would take me to Italy. Yeah, <laughs> nor I. And uh, it was a great trip and just good to to know that you're not alone with the challenges you're going through with. Everybody's got to make payroll. Everybody's got to deal with the bank. Everybody's got to deal with, you know, taxes and, you know, accounting and technology and labor. And it's the same, you know, for, across all these companies. So whether you, whether you subscribe to the misery loves company or success breeds success, you know, it's, it's just good to be around people that are, uh, you know, in the same space. It really is. And it pushes you to come back to the next peer group meeting with a little bit, maybe better numbers or a little, you know, solve that problem you talked about the quarter prior. I think it's a motivating factor for us to go back and work on our businesses a little more. It's definitely positive pressure. The accountability calls that I have with Cam and David out at Par 3 Landscape in Vegas are, they're great. I mean, just as that checkpoint of knowing, okay, you know, for this hour, you know, I need to have my my stuff together and know what what we want to talk about and what's what our challenges are. And I'll even kind of go back to the private equity side and looking at different companies. And even if you're not in the market or, or in a position to look at potentially selling your business or a part of your business to another group, whether it be strategic or financial partners, you should kind of always run your business like you are looking to do that. Okay. Because that's just going to force you to put that owner hat on versus the operator hat and say, am I doing the best thing for my business to increase value? And when I look at what companies that are going to really put a spotlight on it and go through a full quality of earnings report and really point out all the deficiencies in my financials and accounting practices and billing practices. And no, this isn't really kosher and stuff like that. If you run your business kind of that way, knowing that maybe in a year, everybody always thinks when you own a business, at some point in time, you want to sell it. I mean, that's, if you hadn't thought that you're fooling yourself as a (laughs) business owner, if you know, you're going to have to go through this, you know, probe, you know, of putting this big spotlight on your company, Plan, keep them clean, run them well. Always assume that next month I'm going to have a audit come through and turn my company upside down. And if you run it consistently that way, you get in those good habits, then it's not a big deal. You know, I mean, we're looking at a company right now where this is a hellacious process for them because they ran a good business, they generated good money, but they didn't really run the back office properly. They didn't have their books in order. They didn't have their documents organized. And and now they're going through it and playing catch up and it's, it's a painful process. And, and as a potential buyer, you know, I kind of look at that. Well, what else did you not really do right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cause you're getting yeah. the liability and risk that comes. Yeah. With company. Yeah. So uh, nothing is off limits as far as, you know, that you can't get past, but I think it's always better to act as if you're in the process of potentially selling your business And you'll just run your business better that way. You know, like you said, every month you're looking at that bottom line number. That's important, you know, not necessarily because, oh, well, this month I better have this much cash or I'm going to be in, you know, a world of hurt next month. No, but that month is going to get looked at maybe by somebody else, you know, a month from now, a year from now, two years from now, they're going to ask, why did this month go down so much when this month went up so much? And you're going to have to explain it. And you may Mm -hmm. have a great explanation, but if you can avoid all those kind of challenges, even better. Yeah, I think it's knowing your numbers and knowing the correlation between your operating and sales team and how you handle the day-to-day and then what the results are at the end of the month or the end of the quarter and having a story to assign to the reasons why it went up or the reasons why it went down, that forces you to look at your business from an investment standpoint right? rather than just saying, oh, well, the market was tough that month or this or that. I mean- yeah, the market goes up and down and COVID, we've had a lot of challenges and headwinds, but at the same time, there's a lot of companies, Stephen and I, we both know who have actually done really well every year through COVID. So it's not just one size fits all in this. You've got to really look at things of 
how is this impacting your business and what are you doing to counteract those headwinds? Right, exactly. Now you said it really well there, Justin. So I do want to ask a quick question here before we wrap. There's a, I, for instance, and a lot of others, I know once you get to this 10 to 20 million in revenue, you start getting attention of a lot of these consolidation companies, companies that are looking to partner, their platform companies looking to bring you into their umbrella. Mm-hmm. And as someone who's deciding maybe that finally having that aha moment that Sean had after the golf round in 2019, what's their first step? Should they respond to these email inquiries and say, yeah, let's meet? Should they find someone that can advise them? What would you say to someone who is looking to say, all right, I think I'm ready to start seriously looking at some deals. What would be your advice to them? As far as you know, when's the right time, there are a number of factors. Definitely bigger companies, of course, are going to trade. And everybody kind of always back to, you know, what what do they trade at in terms of EBITDA? I mean, that's the question that if everybody could, you know, get an answer that they trust and believe, you know, from these consolidation firms or the generational equity type firms that are out there, you know, what's my business worth? They want to know what that. Well, things are only worth what you can sell them for. I mean, that's the truth. And so what it's worth depends upon a lot of different factors. When you decide to take it to market has an equal number of factors and who the prospective audience is of who you market it to. So you're not going to go to a big New York private equity firm if you're doing $300,000 a year in EBITDA. They're not going to give you any attention because they're looking to deploy larger amounts of capital. And it takes almost the same amount of time to do a small deal as it does to do a big deal in terms of, of due diligence work and audit. And so they're going to want to deploy that same money, more money across one deal. I think kind of a magic number to really look at when you need to hire some advisors, maybe looking at an actual investment bank, you know, that million of EBITDA a year, I would say, if you haven't done it before, definitely get some help. Going in full investment bankers and stuff like that. I mean, the downside is you got to pay them. You know, they take a percentage of the deal. And all of these platform companies that are out there in the marketplace, I won't name names. We all know who they are. They would love for you not to have an investment banker Mm. or advisor in the mix. Okay. Not that their intentions are deceitful or anything like that, but they would kind of view it as easier and, and be able to pay a little bit less without that. Definitely, you know, you get above, you know, $2 million, $3 million a year in EBITDA. You'll want to look at doing a full kind of a full auction process where you'll get investment bankers and they will develop a SIM and they will send it out, you know, to hundreds of, of active investors that they're just waiting to get presented with deals because you want to be that person that, that everybody wants to take to the dance because <laughs> the more offers <laughs> yeah. you get, the, the higher the price and the prospective opportunities for good partnerships with, with good firms that are going to add value even after the close. So I'll say this, you know, Crux with, with Superscapes, they were not the highest bidder. You know, we did not go with the highest multiple of earnings and we went with the firm that we thought was going to be the best to work with. And I think we struck gold to the point where I didn't work with Crux before we closed the deal and then developed such a good relationship working with them that now I'm on the buyer side. I was on the sell side before with Sean and now I'm on the buyer side with Crux. And it's just been a great three, four year ride so far and and looking to continue with it. So but those are kind of, I would say, yeah. some magic numbers of anything less than a in a million dollars of EBITDA. You're you're looking at a very very small subset of buyers. Those are going to be individual investors, somebody who maybe you know what's the term? Just you may know this. I've heard this before. Where instead of being entrepreneurs, you know, they're teaching in business school now just to go buy buy your mm-hmm. small business instead of start your small business. Yeah, you know, we've had those, a few on the podcast. Yeah, those those type of buyers will be in that million or less. Above a million, you know, there's advisory services out there that will help take you to market. And there, there's a lot that are industry specific. You know, the green industry has some that focus on that size. But then you get above, you know, probably two and a half, three. That's really where get a good banker involved and know kind of where their involvement and their lines of responsibility are going to, to start and stop. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you have to, you, as an owner, you have to continue to run your business, you know, while you're going through this process and this is a lengthy process. And so where, where I think Sean and I really worked well together. And I mean, he's my brother in life and, and in business too, 
he really just kind of let me run with it for that four to six months after we agreed to kind of work with Crux. And I was the point man on that deal. Had Sean tried to do that himself, you know, it would have been, it would have been tough. So don't underestimate the time involvement to go down that path of selling your business. Yeah. And personalities too, right? Like you and I know Sean, you and Sean have different personalities and certain CEOs who founded and grew the company, they have a different personality going to sit down with a banker or a buyer and things could get off track pretty quick, right? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Know where your strengths are. He built a great company from nothing to the level it was. Keep doing it. Keep growing it. That's the best thing you can do. And, And one of the best things about our partnership with Crux and Superscapes is that we and myself as the operating partner now for Superscapes and the team at Crux, we take so much off their plate that they never have to mess with. I mean, Sean has not spoken to our banker probably in three years. I mean, he doesn't mess with that anymore. That's us. We handle that stuff. We deal with debt service. We deal with all of our reporting. We deal with, now we have a controller as well who does the day in day out bookkeeping, but as far as the finance side of owning a $50 million company, Sean got that taken completely off his plate. Go sell, go grow the business, go do what you're good at. That to me is a great quality in a prospective financial partner is are they going to bring not just cash to buy you out or inject capital into the business that may be undercapitalized, but are they going to help you day in, day out, run the business with ideas, with expertise, with relationships, all those things you got to look at. Well, it sounds like you definitely found a great firm and so much so that you're now part of their team, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's been great. It's been great. To recap, if you're under a million, go join a peer group or hire a coach, get to a million is what I heard. Yeah. (laughs) Cause if it's, it's not that hard to get to a million. It's it. That's the, that's the easy. I mean, it's the hardest probably I would say to get to like a hundred thousand. That's just being a proof of concept that you can run a business and go get just the just get the credit to go buy your first truck and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the the very, very early on challenges of running a business, get to a hundred million in earn or hundred thousand in earnings. Okay. From there to a million, it's just kind of repeat, you know, do mm-hmm. kind of the same thing. When you get above a million, then you're just like, okay, man, I need to get some really smart people around me. I got some accounting challenges. I probably have some debt with the bank I got to mess with. You know, I'm looking at bigger projects. I got to do proposals that I don't really know anything about, bonding stuff, immigration law, all that stuff. Okay, we see a lot of companies. And that's why in the landscape space, there's thousands of companies that the owner makes a great living. You know, he's making his three, four hundred thousand dollars a year, taking his three, four weeks of nice vacations, driving a hundred fifty thousand dollar truck, got his boat. I see that all the time. Okay. Yep. Congratulations to him. That's a great thing you have. But you want to get over that million dollars. Some of those guys just, they get out over their skis. It gets them out of their comfort zone. And so when you do that, you got to bring in some some expertise. And so maybe that's time to, to bring in a partner. And a lot of those platform building companies, you know, really ideally to get the maximum value of your business, you want to be that platform company. You know, right. if Justin, if, if, yeah. if X years from now, you're looking to sell your business, you don't want to be absorbed by a platform. You want to be that platform, you know, yeah. and then go do it again. And that's really where Superscapes did well. And we're yeah, trying yeah. to add on some some smaller companies to the Superscapes kind of umbrella, because then you add a ton of value when you go talk about maybe retrading that entity. Yeah. Everyone yeah. talks about that initial platform company like Mariani and different, you know, other, I'm not going to name, name all of them, but different ones that are being that starting point of the, of the growing private equity yeah. space. So, yeah. well, with that, we, uh, we always like to wrap up our episodes with our trade secret. So this is something we kind of coined as, as it's something you've learned working in the industry. You can't really find in a book. You didn't go read somewhere or learn in school. It's something that you've just learned through experience. And so Stephen, what would you like to share for your trade secret for today? I would say that just enjoy and truly like the people that you work with and partner with. We signed the deal with Crux and Wayne and Wayne and Sean now are are very, very close friends. You got to enjoy the people that you work with. I don't care if they give you a great offer. I don't care if they bring in a ton of expertise. You're going to be working with these people for a long time, a lot of hours. Just like them. Just know that you click, that you're of similar mindsets. I hate working with people that I don't like. You know, Mm -hmm. as a person individually, either I don't like their business practices, their ethics, morality, whatever, whatever your, your deciding factor is, just make sure you like them. Okay. We, we met, we met with some people 
that they flew in from, you know, from out of the city. I mean, we were at a nice fancy dinner and I'm looking over at Sean. I'm like, there's no way we're ever going to work with these people. <laughs> yeah, and just you get tell. out of those situations quick. Before we even saw numbers, they could have offered us double and we said, nope, not interested. Just don't <laughs> underestimate the value of liking the people that you work with. That That's such good advice. I, uh, I learned a really important lesson early on in business from a mentor of mine. And they said, if you are wanting to go into business or do business with someone, always have them bring their partner or spouse with you, with them. And you can really see someone's true colors, how they act when they have someone that close around them. Also, just how they interact with them. Do they bring them into the conversation? Do they kind of push them out? So that's always been something I've learned. I think that's space. great advice. I, <laughs> yeah. I've never done that, but that, boy, I may, I may steal that, Maggie. That's <laughs> so, but it goes along with lines of exactly what you're saying. You know, you can really see someone's true core values when they're, when they're in their comfort zone. So you want to work with those people that you feel comfortable with both in and out of their comfort zone. So, yeah. And going back to our peer group stuff, I mean, Justin, I don't know, you know, how your wife felt, but I mean, you took 10 or 11 business owners and their spouses to spend a week together in oh, yeah. pretty close quarters. I mean, my wife was nervous about this trip. Oh, you know? Lilo was nervous, say the least. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it just, it just went, you know, like, oh, they're all great people, but I had not met anybody else's spouses, you know, in our, in our meetings leading up to our trip to Italy. And it just went off great. Everybody got along and it just re-solidified the value of that group of people that I want to continue working with. For the yeah. long term, whether, whether it be as part of the peer group or other ventures, or I mean, you got to like the people you're working with, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I got- my husband had never met Justin, and last week they met for the first time on the golf course. So, same thing kind yeah, of. Yeah, I learned a bunch there. about Maggie. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Scary. <laughs> oh, it was a good time, though. But, and Stephen Wayne famously said when we were in Texas, he said it's easier to get out of a marriage than it is a business relationship. And no question. Yeah. So, Pick your people wisely. That's a great yeah. share. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. We really appreciated your time today and the conversation. And uh, we look forward to continuing the relationship and seeing what great things come from Superscapes. Thank you, guys. Maggie, Justin, this has been great. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Stephen. Have a great day, man. All right, guys. 